in the 1980s and early 90s, a real American hero came on the scene. Though his plastic likeness actually showed up first. But that real American hero was called G.I. Joe. And G.I. Joe was the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force whose purpose was to defend human freedom from COBRA. was this evil, terrible terrorist organization that was meant to conjure up every imaginable evil enemy army. So as many of you know, it was a cartoon that kids like myself watched when I was growing up. Some parents let their kids watch it, like my parents. Other parents, though, uh, they didn't like the program. They thought it was, it promoted violence, and they, they all think more than a glorified commercial for their plastic toys. Now, they were certainly right about the, the latter, but in order to combat that complaint, the former complaint, that G.I. Joe was essentially bad for children to watch, the cartoon started adding a segment at the very end of their program. They thought it, they, they were doing that like a lot of programs were doing at that time. And in that final scene of G.I. Joe, it was located far away from the battles of that particular episode, usually in the neighborhood. Something would happen, whether it was at school or at home, and it would be some type of a common experience for those watching. And so while they were playing in their backyard or something like that, that something bad would happen. And all of a sudden, G.I. Joe would show up, one of the G.I. Joe, and he would help the kids handle it the right way. And at the end of that scene, G.I. Joe would say, Now you know, and knowing is half the battle. And G.I. Joe, again, wasn't the only show to do that. There were all these other PSAs, you know, public service announcements. You had the more general one to grow on segments that was later followed up by the more you know segments. And there were lots of these. And the idea was that the right thing, if you knew the right thing to do, that would be part of the solution to previous failures. So if we educate, we can fix the problem. And G.I. Joe was just, just trying to help us, right? They were just trying to help so they could stay on the air and sell their toys. Now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Well, at least they recognized that it was half the battle, right? They understood that there was more going on than just knowing. Now, there are others who study human behavior, and they attempt to explain the other half of the battle. But again, like I've mentioned before, in secular studies of human behavior, there's this conspicuous absence of anything about sin. And, and really that coincides with and fits with what we as humans naturally do. We have this natural, we can do it attitude in terms of our lives. And that's a mindset that stretches back to the very beginning of human existence. The first man and woman, they reached out their hand to grasp at the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. So they were really rejecting God's revelation of good and evil. They thought they could determine what was good and what was evil for themselves. And we are living in the fallout of that action. But revelation is not the complete solution to the problem that they created. 
Now, you could say it's half the battle, but only if you don't perpetuate the problem in how you try to use God's revelation. And, and that's what Jewish people in Paul's day were doing. They believed that knowing was half the battle, or maybe even more. But they were using the knowledge of, of what God wanted. They were using it in a way that, that really relied on their own understanding. So they were really still perpetuating what Adam and Eve had begun. Because they were determining for themselves how to be good. How to avoid evil. So they really weren't listening, not completely, to God's revelation. And, and that meant that their effort to solving the sin problem was like covering a mortal wound with a Band-Aid. It wasn't solving the problem. So yes, we do need God to tell us how we ought to live. We do need that revelation. But we won't actually do what he says in the state that we're in. The fallout from Adam and Eve is too great. So knowing is not the solution to our sin problem. Knowing what God wants us to do is not the solution to our sinful state. We need what Paul describes in his letter to the Romans as the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. So in our world of of PSAs that that continue to this day, and self-help books, and, and even scientific studies, we need to recognize that knowing is not the solution. We, we do need to know the gospel, but the gospel isn't educational. Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we need the gospel to save us, to transform us. Not, not the revelation of God's law. I mean, certainly that can point to the gospel, but it does not save us. Only the gospel saves And yet, even after we have begun to believe that truth, even after we have begun to experience the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus, we can still slip into, we can fall into that kind of wrong thinking that we saw illustrated in the first century with a Jewish person. We can fall into this moralistic thinking. So that's what Paul addresses. He he addresses this false hope in knowledge in our text this morning in Romans 2. Verses 12 through 16. You can turn there. It's found again on page 884 in the Pew Bible. Romans 2, verses 12 through 16. It's always good to go to the scripture that we're, we're covering and follow along there. The specific knowledge that Paul's talking about, that he's focused on, is the knowledge of right and wrong as it's revealed in the Mosaic Law. That's what he is focused on. So even knowing God's revelation is not the solution. And Paul's going to give us two reasons why knowing God's law is not the solution. First of all, it's doing, not knowing, that counts. And second, even those who don't know, know better. So it's doing, not knowing, that counts. And even those who don't know, know better. We're going to look at both of those, but let's... First of all, look at the first reason Paul gives here for saying, or as he says, that knowing is not the solution, even knowing God's law. So in verses 12 and 13, Paul explains that it's doing, not knowing that counts. And so Paul says in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. 
And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So keep an eye on this verse. This is a very important verse for understanding what Paul's going to say in this whole section. And he begins with the word for. So that tells us in this case that he is referring back to, and he's actually explaining something he just finished talking about. And that was in verse 11, where he said that God shows no partiality. God's judgment is going to be the same for both the Jewish person and the Goy. You know, the person who was part of God's old covenant, people who have received that revelation from him, and those who did not have that revelation. Now, even though God did treat old covenant members differently, he did treat them differently. He established a relationship with them. He revealed truth through them. But even though he did that, he was not going to treat them differently in the end when we all stand before him and before his judgment. But again, think about that. Think about what I just said, that that God isn't going to treat his people differently on judgment day. I mean, surely they still had an advantage, though. They did, after all, experience his revelation. They'd received his instruction that he, he gave them through that covenant. Instructions that included rules and regulations for how someone could behave with a holy God, should behave with a holy God, and remain in his presence. And how could that not help you on judgment day? They know the code. Didn't that mean anything? And Paul is surprisingly saying, surprisingly for a Jewish person in the first century, he's saying, no, it doesn't mean anything when it comes to salvation and condemnation on judgment day. Because on Judgment Day, those who have sinned without knowing God's revelation of right and wrong, as it's found in the Mosaic Law, they were going to perish without that law. And those who have sinned while under the jurisdiction of the law would be judged by that law. So that's how the law impacts the final judgment. It doesn't save. So for those that it either plays no part in the life of a person who didn't experience it, or it's used to condemn someone who has experienced it, who did know it. It just depends on if you knew it or not. But the outcome, the final outcome was the same, is what Paul's saying. So knowing God's law is not the solution. And he explains why in verse 13. He says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. This is the first time we hear this word justified. Paul talks about being justified, and he's going to talk about it a lot in his letter. But you notice the parallel. Parallel is being righteous before God. So on Judgment Day, God will determine who is righteous in his presence and who is not. Those who are not righteous will be judged or condemned. They'll be punished, or as Paul says it here, they will perish. And and it sounds like what Paul's saying here is that one can do the law, and be righteous. And that's what Jewish people in Paul's day would have agreed with. They would have said, yeah, that, that's true. And they wouldn't have said that thinking as though God hadn't showed grace to them. They believed in God's grace. They knew that God had graciously chosen them out of all the other nations. But there were religious thinkers like the people Paul studied under. Pharisees, very popular among the people. And, and they definitely still believed that you could only maintain that righteous status, that righteous privilege by doing the law, by obeying the obligations listed by Moses in his covenant 
that God made with his people at Mount Sinai. So the Jewish person who carries out the law, they would be the person that could be considered righteous before God in the very end when they stand in his courtroom. When every last one of us is judged. Paul's acknowledging that, at least in theory. Being righteous is a matter of being right with God. God's clear from the very beginning that being right with him involves being blameless. That's what he told Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 17.1. And then later on in Leviticus 19.2, he told his people that they must be holy because he is holy. So blameless, holy living is a requirement for everybody because of a blameless, holy God. Jesus said the same thing. In his Sermon on the Mount, this sermon is all about the righteous demands of the kingdom, the righteous demands of where God is going to reign and where he does reign, even now. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 47, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So it's true that a Jewish person who stands before God on Judgment Day and who has perfectly kept the law, that person would be declared righteous by God. They would be in right standing with God. Free to enter his kingdom. But again, note the emphasis of this whole section. When we look at verse 13, the point it's making is the basis for verse 12. And verse 12 doesn't mention being declared righteous. It mentions being condemned and perishing. And what Paul will go on to say in the 20th verse of the next chapter is by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So it's not enough to simply know God's revelation about what's right and wrong. The Jewish person who heard the law read in the synagogue repeatedly, all over and over again, they would be no better off than the Gentile Roman who had never heard it, never stepped foot in a synagogue. Because... That law wouldn't help the Jewish person unless they had done that law perfectly. Perfectly obeyed it. And that's true for us. See, in the end, God is going to judge humanity. And when we face that judgment, it's not going to matter whether or not we know what he wants us to do. It's going to matter what we've actually done. God is going to judge us based on what we did why is Paul telling us this? I mean, this is bad news. I mean, it's very uplifting, Paul. Thanks a lot. Paul, Paul's telling us this because we need to know why we need the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus. Jesus is the only human who ever kept the law perfectly. He is the great and sure fulfillment of the law, like we sing about last week. He did everything the Father wanted. He was the perfect reflection of God's holiness. He was blameless. So he's the only hope for anyone who stands condemned for what they have done. He's their hope because Jesus took the condemnation that we deserve when he died on the cross. God orchestrated it so that that Jesus' death was clearly the experiencing of his punishment for sin. 
That's what the book of Deuteronomy says about being killed on a cross. So Jesus didn't deserve that punishment. But he willingly took it for everyone who believes in him. So as you listen to this bad news that Paul is sharing, what should your first response be? To trust in Jesus to make you right with God because you can't make yourself right with him on your own. Jesus' death provides the punishment for everyone who trusts in him. And his resurrection shows that you can be reunited with God and experience eternal life in trusting in him, by trusting in him. Now, we parents, we need to think very carefully about this subject. We can very easily slip into a mode that thinks that we can educate the sin out of our children. But God has entrusted us with these kids so that we'll raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. That means that all of our discipline and instruction has to center on Jesus. We can't just teach them the law. We can't just teach them rules to obey. So if we do that and we don't point them to Jesus, what we're going to do is we're going to raise good little Pharisees who will trust in knowing the rules on Judgment Day instead of trusting in Jesus on Judgment Day. And this isn't just for parents. This is for, for anyone in the church. Especially when we're teaching children. We cannot just give children PSAs on Sundays. And so what we have learned applies to our lives today. God has a lot to say in his book. You see, we know that God's word is for everyone. Now that our song is done, we'll take a look. When do you hear that song? Veggie Tales. When do you hear it in Veggie Tales, though? At the end. Exactly when G.I. Joe's program would say, now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Now, to be fair, Phil and Mike probably were just following a trend that they grew up listening to as kids. They're not that much older than me. But it would have been nice for them to follow their moral with something like, remember kids, we're all sinners and we need Jesus. Instead, what we got was God made you special. And he loves you very much. Now, I'm not saying don't show your kids VeggieTales. My kids have seen VeggieTales. But I am saying that your kids should not, you should not feed your kids a steady diet of VeggieTales. Vegetables, yes. Not VeggieTales. Not VeggieTales. Because they never get to the bad news. Nor do they ever get to the good news about Jesus, really. And you know, some Sunday school curriculums and some, some, some Sunday school teaching does the same thing. You know, one of my jobs when I was an associate pastor down in Florida was to pick a new Sunday school curriculum. And so what I found when I researched all these different Sunday school curriculums is that there are a lot of Sunday school curriculums, especially children's curriculums, that are very moralistic, 
They teach kids what God wants them to do. They don't teach them Jesus. In fact, even when they have stories about Jesus, they're teaching you moralism. They're teaching you what God wants them to do. Here's the right thing you should do, kids. That's what the teaching's all about. Now, learning what God says is right and wrong is absolutely important, but it is not the solution to our sin problem. Now, some people would say, well, you know, I I don't want to tell kids negative things. We want to stay positive. Well, it's certainly... There's certainly a good and bad way to share the truth about sin. But the idea that, of not being negative with our children, it stems from this idea that kids are essentially good. And all you need for kids to be good is to put them in the right situation, to give them the right opportunity to be what they are, which is good. Paul says that's not the case. So we should not teach them that way. All we'll be instilling in them, all we'll be encouraging in them, them is what actually is in them, what's in all of us. And it's not good. And that doesn't just go for kids. That goes for all the people around us. As we have an opportunity to tell people the good news about Jesus, we, we cannot be afraid to share the negative truth. If we are afraid to say what is negative but is foundational for understanding the good news, if we withhold the bad news, we're really just going to be joining the counselors and the teachers in our day who encourage moralism, who encourage people to depend on their knowledge of what is right and what is wrong instead of encouraging them to depend on Jesus alone to save them. If we, if we tell them, even if we teach them what God says is right and wrong, if we don't tell them that they're sinners in need of Jesus, we're not gonna, they're not going to experience the change that actually solves their sin problem. Knowing is not the solution. In the end, it's doing, not knowing that counts, and none of us have done or will do what God wants perfectly. So Paul then gives a second reason that knowing God's law is not the solution in verses 13 through 16. Not only is it doing, not knowing that counts, but even those who don't know, know better. Now, the reason why that, that is a reason for knowing that knowing is not the solution, the reason why that's a reason here, it may be hard to see, but let's understand who Paul's talking to. Remember who Paul is speaking with. Last week, we talked about how Paul's engaged in this ancient form of education, teaching, called diatribe. And so that's where he imagines he's talking to somebody in particular in order to help his students correct some wrong thinking. So the person that he's imagining he's talking to, we discovered last week, was a Jewish person in his day. A Jewish person in Paul's day, they believed that they were going to receive special treatment from God in the end. I mean, after all, he had chosen them. He had treated them special. And he'd given them the rules to live by. I mean, surely that's going to give them a leg up. And, and Paul, again, he's saying here, it's not going to. He's already said it's not going to help you because it's doing the law that really matters. But now he's going to tear down this idea of the special treatment that gives them a leg up. He's going to show them that Gentiles, 
the non-Jewish people around them have something that's going to act analogously with the law. Look at verse 14. Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now, the way that Paul's wording this, it's important to stay from the start, he is not saying every single Gentile acts this way. What he's doing is he's, he's wording this in such a way that some Gentiles do this. He's using an example of what some Gentiles illustrate from time to time. And what they illustrate is that they have an understanding of a moral code. And he points out, points out very clearly, they don't have the law. He's meaning the Mosaic law. Now there's a question about the, the, what comes next in the line, uh, by nature, that, that phrase there. There's a lot of good reasons why the ESV puts it with the first part. Uh, or sorry, puts it with the second part with where they put the comma. I agree with the CSB. I think it's, it's really going with the first part. It's saying that Gentiles, by nature, do not have the law. They're not born into a situation where they're hearing the law. That's their circumstance. They haven't been born into a situation where God's revelation is told to them week in and week out in the synagogue. And then Paul builds off of that by showing something remarkable. He says, even though they didn't grow up learning what God wanted, some of them, at times, We'll do what God wants. Now, we know from passages like Isaiah 64, uh, 64, 6, that you can do the right thing externally and not from the heart in a manner that God accepts. So Paul isn't necessarily saying here that they're actually fulfilling the law here. His point is that there are times where we see non-Jewish people, people who have never been raised with a knowledge of God's rules, and they're not murdering. And they're not committing adultery or stealing. Obviously, it's not everyone. But there are many, many people in many different societies that that's true of. And what Paul says is that they're functioning as a law for their own benefit. He says in verse 15 that they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, Jeremiah 31, 33 explicitly promised under the new covenant that God would write his law on their hearts. But Paul's not quite ready to bring that up. So I don't think he's talking about that here. He words this very carefully. He doesn't say that the law is written on their heart. He says that the work of the law is written on their hearts. The deeds the law prescribes, the action that God wants, they fit with what has been written into the fabric of a Gentile's heart. Paul already told us what was going to happen to these Gentiles. Even these Gentiles who in certain cases do externally bring about what the law describes in the Old Testament, but who also sin. Those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And he's very clear that the people he's talking about don't have the Old Testament. They don't have the law. But if Paul were referring to the new covenant work that Jeremiah described, that was being experienced by Gentiles in his day, and in our day. If he were referring to that, if he meant to say that these are Gentile Christians, it wouldn't actually be a good case for what he's saying. As Tim Keller points out when he comments on this verse, he said, it is difficult to imagine that Gentile Christians would not have been taught the law, the Old Testament, in their church. 
So Paul's not talking about Gentile Christians here. He's simply saying that these Gentiles show that they have a moral quality about them. They have an internalized reality that works with what God wants. I don't think Paul's saying that they have an internal, an internal moral compass. I don't think he's saying that, you know, when Adam and Eve grasp at a knowledge of good and evil apart from God, really they already had that. They had that inherently in their hearts. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's merely saying that God has created us as moral creatures with an inherent capacity to act in ways that align with what he wants. We don't inherently know what God wants. But by means of our conscience and experience, we can act in ways that show we know we should be moral. Paul then brings up the conscience in verse 15. And he shows how it functions in the lives of these believers. And the the ESV kind of words this in a way that almost seems like the next line's disconnected because it says the word also. That's not in the original text. So reading it without that word, it says that their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. As Robert Mounts well puts it, the conscience is not a norm for action, but an inner witness that judges whether whether or not an act is right or wrong. The conscience is not a guide, and that idea actually is not found in the Bible. The Old Testament really didn't develop the idea of a conscience, not clearly, but it did describe it. It described it in the behavior of pagans like Abimelech in Genesis, who knew he had done something wrong when he'd done it. So Paul's not really getting this idea simply from Greek philosophy, like some have suggested. What we call a conscience is a thought process that recognizes guilt or it recognizes innocence when you do something. It evaluates rather than guides you. So what Paul describes is like an inner courtroom here. And the conscience functions like an attorney who either prosecutes you for what you've done or defends you for what you've done. Depends on what you've done. And the conscience can walk across the courtroom in the middle of the case. And I think he often does. It often does. At one point, it'll say, oh, that was innocent. And then walk across and prosecute you for something else that you've done. So it's this dialogue, this back and forth nature of accusing you of wrong or exonerating you, saying you're innocent. But what Paul says here that it mostly does for these Gentiles, is accuse them of wrong. Notice that he says, accuse or even excuse. Means that it's more exceptional to excuse you. The more common action that your conscience does is accuse you. Now, what Paul goes on to say in verse 16 is that all this comes to play in the end. The, The process that's going on in your mind, the accusing and excusing, that does happen now, But it's like it's being recorded. And and it's going to come to play in the end when you're in the actual courtroom. It's almost like you have that that device I mentioned last week. That recording device. Only it's not recording what you say. It's recording your heart. What's going on in your heart. So Paul says that our conscience is going to take up this role in God's jurisprudence on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus for Paul the day that's a specific day that day it's 
in the end. It doesn't have to be a 24-hour period. He's not referring to 24-hour period. He's talking about that period, that, that time when everything changes. And he says that it's when God judges the secrets of men. So that's when the judge is going to pull the record from our hearts, that invisible recorder. It's only then that it's really going to count for or mostly against us. That's when he says these secret things are going to be revealed. Everything that you imagine is secret to God is going to be revealed in the, in the end. And what Paul's talking about here especially is how your conscience said, oh, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. And it's going to function as a prosecuting attorney in God's court before the judge. So that's why I'm saying that even those who don't know, know better. Even those who don't know the law, they still know better. And they show that when they do what's right from time to time. Those who don't know the law still know better when they do what's wrong because of the way that God made them. That's why the Gentiles were in the same boat as the Jewish person in Paul's day. The Mosaic law would accuse the person who was under the Mosaic law. But your conscience was going to accuse you. The person without the Mosaic law still had a conscience. So any perceived advantage with knowing God's law was null and void because the conscience was going to function in a similar way. Both were going to accuse. Because in the end, God's going to judge us for what we've done. And we cannot get ourselves out of the mess we've made for ourselves. Notice though the last qualifiers there in verse 16. Paul describes the judgment as according to my gospel and by Christ Jesus. He doesn't mean that his gospel is unique. He's not saying that this is my gospel opposed to the other gospels out there. He, he's pointing out the way that God had entrusted, Jesus had entrusted this good news to Paul. So he held it tightly. This was very important for him. And in his explanation of this good news, it included God's teaching on judgment. When, when Paul describes and tells people the good news, he talks about judgment. It doesn't sound like good news. But there's no real good news unless you understand the bad news. Notice that this judgment, he says, is carried out by Christ Jesus. The person who hands out punishment in the end is Jesus. He'll do that as his role, in his role as king. Christ is talking about the ruler that God promised to send in the end, who was going to establish God's kingdom. He was going to be the judge. He's going to dole out the punishments on that great and dreadful day. And, and how appropriate that is. There's no accusations that can be made against that judge as though he's not gracious and merciful. That judge came and suffered the punishment himself. Now that doesn't mean that everyone who stands before him must have to have heard the good news about Jesus. Chapter 1 dispels us of that notion. We're all guilty. We deserve nothing 
but that punishment. But it does say that there will be no arguments. Well, you're an unjust judge. You're an unmerciful judge. You're an ungracious. The judge himself took the punishment for everyone who trusts in him. So he is a loving and gracious judge. And yet he's also righteous. So when we learn that Jesus is going to be the judge in the end, and our own consciences are going to be standing against us and being prosecuting attorneys, opposing us, accusing us of what we've done. When we hear that, when we recognize that, it should make us run to Jesus now. Run to the one who died for sinners. Run to the one who was punished for sinners. It should tell us, now's the time you want to meet Jesus. Because in the end when you meet him, he is not going to be, you're not going to be meeting him as Savior if you have not trusted in him now. You'll be meeting him as judge. We're all sinners. We're all worthy of God's punishment. So I would urge you to trust in Jesus again. Turn from your sinful attempts to direct your own life. Be able to chart your own course and trust in Jesus. And if you trust in him as your savior and your king, then you will follow him. And that's how I would urge you to respond. Now, let's come back to this idea of conscience for just a moment. I want to talk a little bit about this, what I'm going to call the Jiminy Cricket fallacy. So if you remember Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio, and I'm talking about the 1940 cartoon. I'm not talking about Guillermo, or Guillermo del Toro's puppet one or the Tom Hanks live action one. I haven't seen those. But in the cartoon, the Blue Fairy appoints Jiminy, who is a cricket, to be Pinocchio's conscience. And if you remember from the cartoon, when he's introduced to Pinocchio, he has this little song, you know, give a little whistle song, and he tells the wooden puppet there that if he gets in trouble and he doesn't know right from wrong or meets temptation and and the urge is very strong to give a little whistle or even scream or yell, Jiminy Cricket, and Jiminy Cricket will come. And, And then he says that that repeated line, always let your conscience be your guide. And you know, that's really bad advice. Because your conscience wasn't given to guide you. It was given to evaluate you. Paul describes consciences a lot of different ways. He describes them as defiled, some of them as defiled in Titus 1.15, and some as seared in 1 Timothy 4.2. And he describes some as weak in 1 Corinthians 8, which has to do with overly sensitive consciences that aren't, aren't actually functioning the way they are. So we, the way they should, we can have consciences that malfunction in terms of their evaluative process, that we cannot depend merely on our conscience to be our guide, on the one hand, because they're not perfect. Now, they're still going to function as God created them to function in the end. But, we shouldn't rely on our conscience, our conscience to do something that God did not make it to do. God didn't create our conscience to be our guide. 
So what humanity calls for when we encourage or when the world encourages us to follow our conscience, it's not really that different than the program that our first parents started out on. All the way back at the beginning. The call to follow your conscience is really just to grasp at an independent knowledge of right and wrong. That's something God condemned at the beginning and he condemns today. It's really just a cry for autonomy. If I listen to my conscience, then I get to determine what I do. I can direct myself. That's what Jesus is calling us to turn from. That's what we need to repent of. So flick that little cricket right off your shoulder. He is not supposed to be your guide. Turn to the one who is our guide. Turn to Jesus. We, we who are following Jesus, we have put on his yoke that teaches us what we ought to do. We have been bound to his teaching. So when we trust in him as Savior and Lord, we seek to listen to him. And that's why we gather each week. To learn from him as all of Scripture is his word. But if I said knowing Jesus, knowing something isn't the solution, I did say that, right? Then how, how does this work? Well, knowing good and evil from God, and knowing, knowing about good and evil from God, that's not the solution to our sin problem. Paul's going to go on to say that doesn't mean the law is wrong. But when we trust in Jesus for the righteousness in Jesus by faith, he gives us his spirit. And that's really when the promise that Jeremiah described happens, where God's law is written on our hearts so that we can do what he wants. It's not that we just know how to do what he wants, but that he's actually producing that obedience in our lives by his spirit. It's not just that we know how to love or be joyful or promote peace or be patient, but the Holy Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, and and more in us. And so we learn from Christ with the expectation that his spirit is going to enable us to do it. We listen to what God reveals in his word, not as the solution to our sin problem, but because we've experienced the solution to our sin problem. And now we do what God wants in response to that solution. So I'm not giving you one to grow on this morning. Each week, we give the gospel to grow on. Everything that we teach is based on the gospel, and and that's how growth occurs. It all stems from this good news about Jesus. That's our starting point. So when we attempt to live out God's word, we acknowledge that we're sinners who have experienced this amazing love and acceptance through Christ alone. We don't give PSAs on Sunday. We give HSAs, not the medical expense version. We don't give public service announcement. We give Holy Spirit announcements. We are giving every Sunday the Holy Spirit's inspired word. That's what we give. That's what we listen for. We don't listen for Jiminy Cricket. We don't listen for a still small voice on Sundays. 
what we're listening for is the word. And the Holy Spirit works with his word to produce that, the effect of that word in our life. He makes his word effectual. He inspired the word, and he's the one who makes it effectual in our lives. And again, we can't do that as the solution. We can only respond to the truth if Christ is our solution, not just knowledge. Join me in prayer. Father, we... We are resting in Christ. He is our only hope in life and death. And so as we, as we think about a text that says that it's not about knowing what is right, help us. Help us to tell the truth to others. Help us to tell the truth to ourselves that we're not on a program of being accepted by God by what we do. That we are listening to you now only because of that powerful, transformative work of grace that's taken place through the gospel. So help us, as we teach others, not to lead them astray our children help us not to discipline and instruct them merely about what you want help us to give them Jesus repeatedly I know how easy it is speak from experience of how easy it is to get warped and to, to, to start to present an idea of mere rules to our kids it's important for us to teach our kids what you want. Help us, help us to give them Jesus. Help us to give the people around us Jesus. Help us to recognize that we can't just bring about a moral submission. Can't just educate the sin out of people. us to recognize why we need the righteousness that comes from you through Jesus by faith. Father, anyone here this morning who hears this, anyone here who recognizes their own sin this morning, they recognize that they are a sinner, they would hear that verse 12. Does it matter whether they know what you want as it's revealed in your word or whether they've demonstrated their Knowledge that they are moral creatures, that if they sin, they'll be judged. And to realize we've all sinned. That's why we need Jesus, and that they would recognize that and trust in Jesus even this morning. Help us to rely on your Spirit to change. Amen.